it's not even August yet? Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. We've got a, an action-packed podcast today with Darlin, Ezra Klein, and Jane Cosen. And we are here to talk about, what are we talking about, Ezra? White threat in a browning America. So I've been working on this piece for a while, uh, and we're going to put it in show notes. It's a long piece, so I don't want to take everybody's time up by, by summarizing the whole thing. But it's basically an argument about why things are the way they are right now, why we are having the fights we're having, why we had Barack Obama followed by Donald Trump, why we're having this obsessive focus on political correctness wars on campus, uh, on and on and on down the line. And the, the piece is three parts, which I'll just go through very, very fast and then and then open this up. The first is that America really is changing. We are at a pretty profound set of demographic tipping points. In 2013, that was the first year, according to the Census Bureau, that a majority of infants under one were non-white. Uh, we are now at a point, according to a, a recent Census Bureau-related report, that there are more states where white people dying are, are outnumbering white people being born. In 2030, according to the Census Bureau, immigration will overtake native births as the main driver of population growth in America. We are coming up on a record number of foreign-born residents. We're at around 14% now. Um, Dara probably knows this better than I do. But in a couple of years, we're going to go up to 17 18%, which is higher than we've ever had it before. The last record in that was in the 1890s, if I'm not wrong. We've had a huge change in um, gender relations in this country. We just almost had the first female president. There is a lot going on. The power structures in America, the demographic numbers in America, it's all changing. New coalitions are rising. And, and one of the things that I think is particularly interesting about this, the demographers say that we're going to have majority-minority America by roughly 2042, 2043. But if you ask people now, they say we already have it. So to the extent that perception is a big part of this, the perception is that we already have a majority-minority America, on, uh, at least from the perspective of race. So, OK. The rest of the piece is doing two things. One is there's a huge amount of research now showing that when you expose people to a sense of demographic threat – and this is, by the way, not just white people, although it's white people in America who are experiencing this most completely right now. Uh, but when you expose people to a sense of demographic threat, they become, among other things, more group-focused. They become more politically conservative. There's uh, some great studies I have from Jennifer Richeson in there uh, showing pretty significant swings towards the Republican Party. Uh, if you tell white political independents who live near California, that California is majority minority now, they become 11 points more likely to say they support the Republican Party. They also have a swing towards Republican uh, and conservative policy positions, both on racial and non-racial matters. There's amazing research from Ryan Enos where he just put Spanish speakers on subways in Boston and just asked the ridership before and after about politics, and they got a lot more conservative if they began to feel that there are more Spanish speakers near them. So these things do change us. They change our politics. And if you begin to see politics like that, if you begin to see this as one of the sort of macro forces operating on our political system right now, a lot of other things begin to make a lot more sense. You see Donald Trump, I think, more clearly. You see some of these political correctness fights more clearly. But you also see the other side of it, too. 
abolish ICE, the Democrats' very, very big move to the left on immigration, the rise of Barack Obama, it's not just that whites get threatened. It's that as a non-white coalition or a partially non-white coalition, I should say, becomes more powerful in American politics, they're also able to make their grievances heard. They're also able to demand things they want. They're also able to elect representatives who come out of their out of their communities. And so that creates a, a context in which there's a lot of collision between senses of, of threat and senses of of rising hope. I start the piece by just going through, I think, this unbelievably perfect and for future historians, very convenient difference between Obama and, and Trump, where Obama runs on this uh, platform of hope and change, right? Like the idea is that change should fill you with hope. And then Donald Trump comes out after him and says, like, let's make America great again. Let's go back. You have this very perfect collision between these two forces. And I think these are going to be the foundation of a lot of our political conflict in, in the coming decades. I think that talking about Obama is particularly instructive here because, and this is something that you get into in the piece, Ezra, Hillary Clinton was a lot more progressive explicitly on issues of race and policy in her 2016 run than Obama was, especially in his first term and especially in his 2008 run. This is a point that I'm kind of stealing from something that Matt has said on prior occasions that, you know, the fact that Obama was himself non-white allowed for a certain expectation of support with non-white Democratic voters, whereas Clinton had to like try to make that up with policy, which, of course, you can understand the dynamic in which moving to the left on issues of policy that are racially inflected is going to move white voters to the right. However, as your piece describes and as like political scientists have been working through, the fact that Obama was in office as a black man was itself seen as something of, if not a racial provocation, it certainly made race more salient to a lot of these same white voters. And even though Obama himself often bent over backwards to accommodate white fragility around race, we can't measure counterfactuals, but it certainly did not work to assuage any of the people who actually felt that their whiteness was fragile and their power was fragile. So... This raises some serious questions for me, and I think that you get into this in the kind of section of your piece where you talk about political correctness. But one of the really hard nuts to crack in this is you're describing a dynamic in which anything that can be done to make disenfranchised people in America feel part of the conversation is going to make dominant people feel that they are excluded from the conversation. And that comes up again and again in the piece. The fact that not only is a middle ground not emerging on its own, but that any attempt to try to create a middle ground is going to create a backlash that's going to make it impossible to actually like talk about pluralism in a way that actually includes everyone. And I don't really know what to do with that. Right. And I, I think it's interesting because I feel as if I've long argued that a lot of the fears that you see, not from centrist Republicans, but from kind of the farthest elements of the far right, is this deep fear that white people would become a minority and thus be treated poorly because that's how you treat minorities, which seems to be kind of like, well, so you're arguing that minorities are treated poorly. And I'm like, I, I see where you're going with this. But this two-pronged concept that white people should not be a minority and that minorities should remain minorities mm -hmm. is so fascinating to me because it's this conceptualization of America, a very racialized conception of America, that this is how it's supposed to be. And that if you add more minorities, it'll be further from what it should be. And no one can really explain to me in an adequate way why it should be a majority 
white country. But I think that it's interesting that you see this kind of fear-mongering in a lot of conservative media, but also in the work that Ezra did pointing out that people believe that the country is like 50 percent minority. It is not. I've met many people, you know, growing up in Ohio who were convinced that, like, even the state of Ohio in, like, 2003 was becoming a majority-minority state, which it is not. It was not. And it's interesting, this idea of how race is conceived. It has very little to do with logic or reason, but a lot based on people's feelings. So— I have a lot of thoughts about this. But, like, one thing is that I think that both Ezra's piece and then especially, like, Dara's, like, extra spin on the piece go to painting an unduly dark portrait of the Obama years and Obama's racial politics, right? Like, it's relevant and important that Barack Obama not only won but won re-election in Iowa, in New Hampshire, in Maine, in the second congressional district of Maine, like some of the whitest places in America. He lost the white vote overall. Um, He did particularly poorly with uh, more religiously observant white people, things like that. But he had, you know, a core um, level of support with northern secular working class white people that I think Democrats got complacent about and convinced themselves that there was this like blue wall in the Midwest that wasn't really there, right? But there's a a margin there. And I, I think obviously I've written like Trump's racial politics obviously I think had something to do with the Midwestern turn and also northern New England turn against Democrats. But it was a level of white support that held up against having an African-American president, held up not just against like a a token African-American president, but he appointed a record number of people of color to U.S. attorney jobs, a record number of people of color to federal judgeships, you know, so like things were happening, right? A strategic choice was made by Hillary Clinton, not to beat Donald Trump, but to beat Bernie Sanders right, in the Democratic primary to make the argument that the Democratic Party could not be primarily a political party about economic justice, that this was substantially in tension in a way that like no previous Democrat had ever argued with the goals of racial justice and gender equity, right? If you would go sort of like starting with LBJ through to Barack Obama, the problematic in American politics was Democrats would say, we are trying to help people of low economic means, right? And then Democrats would complain that Republicans were like racializing these debates. So like most poor people are white. Food stamps mostly helps white people. Medicaid mostly helps white people. But it does help lots of black and Latino people too, right? And so Democrats would say, oh, Republicans are like casting everything as being about race, which is bad. And we are pushing back and saying like, no, white America, like don't throw everything away that could be good just to like fuck over black and brown people, right? And Hillary Clinton came along as part of her primary strategy and like flipped that around and was like, no, we need to make everything be about race, right? And to me, that's what backfired much more than like Barack Obama being president is what backfired. And it's something that requires, I think, more scrutiny. Like it's not like the most amazing fact about America that like speaks incredibly well about 
white voters in all white communities that what they really care about is white people. But like it's the world that we live in and it's not like an insurmountable obstacle to having meaningful political progress. Um, the other thing, I just because I, I happen to have been to a dinner that Richard Alba hosted. It was like a symposium on this new issue of uh, – the Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Sciences. And it was specifically on this question of the majority-minority America. You guys can't see this, but I'd, I'd never seen Dara look as jealous. <laughs> as I said, I went to a dinner Richard Alba hosted. I went, I'm went. i super <laughs> sorry to the people who invited me to that dinner because it was the week of the All-Star Game. But yeah. uh, at least we have one person. Well, so – because they raised an important point here about like how the census – I'm sorry. Who is Richard Alba? Is a – Professor of political science. Sociology. Uh, Sociology. He's been super involved on the like Latino whitening hypothesis stuff. Right. So an important question that he raises, right, is – so Ezra, your father's from Brazil. Mm -hmm. My grandfather's from Cuba. According to the census definition, the theory that we're going to have majority-minority America by 2042, this is a majority-minority podcast here that has three people of color and then white Dara. (laughs) I think that that defies common sense. Like, one can say accurately that this room contains two people of partially Latin American ancestry, right? Like, that is a true fact. And it is definitely true that in the future, America will have many more people of partially Latin American or Asian ancestry. There's some sense in which that means it's going to be a majority-minority country. But, like, I don't think that it is true in the relevant sense, or at least it doesn't mean what you might think it means. So let me- and I think like the, the media has created a level of hysteria around this subject that like is just not warranted. So let me let me pull two pieces here apart because I, I think there's a lot here to, to talk through. So one is a question of, of the Obama presidency and how to read that. And then I just before we go into that, I want to say something on the majority minority question. Uh, so a lot of the demographers I spoke to completely agree with you on that. Uh, we were talking earlier about whites becoming minority, something they're very quick to say. Whites do not become a minority. They become a plurality. They become a plurality for the foreseeable future. They are by far the biggest group. They are not a minority group. And in addition, when people talk about majority minority America, one thing happening there, as Matt points out, is that mixed race, which is the group projected to grow the fastest, projected to, if I'm not wrong, triple in size in the next Woo! three decades. <laughs> and 90% um, of mixed race people have one white parent. Is right. important to understand. So um, that's the rapidly is being, growing. Is group. being counted as non-white here, which is just say it is just its own category, right? The, the idea is not that it's not white; it's just it's mixed race. That's what it's called. There is a very interesting debate among demographers about this right now, which is that: Are you going to see the patterns you saw before? Or are you going to see in an America that is much more diverse and has very different ideologies and ideas around diversity, different patterns than you saw before, more identification? There, there's some evidence on both sides of that. I have absolutely no way to adjudicate this debate. I don't know what's going to happen in 20 years. That's why in the piece, I put a fair amount of weight on the idea that what people perceive as happening is actually the important thing here. And, and that, I think, is a good bridge here back to what you were saying, Matt, about Obama. So yes, Obama had very strong white support. Sort of. In 2012, Obama won a smaller percentage of the white vote than Michael Dukakis did in 1988. But even doing that, he could win an extremely convincing electoral victory. Similarly, Donald Trump didn't even win a majority of any vote. He won a a significant minority of the vote. And if you just look at the demographics, if he just won the exact same share of every group in 2020, if nothing changes, 
his electoral victory, uh, according to what I've read, is so close that he would lose anyway, right? If just nothing in his electoral coalition changed, enough people in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, et cetera, would um, die. Die. I was going to say age out of the electorate <laughs> <laughs> that, it, that it would change. So he actually needs to build on his support. One thing I've read uh, as people interpret the piece, and this is certainly on me as a writer, is they take it – I tried to say the final paragraph of the piece says that to say there will be friction is not to say there will be dissolution. One of the things I did in writing this, I'm a Californian. California is a majority minority state already, much more so than America is projected to be for some time. It is not completely uncohesive. It's not like a Mad Max style war of all against all. It's fine. I, I went and talked I to a bunch it, of – I to be honest. <laughs> I, I went and talked to a bunch of politicians there. But – Two things I think are notable about the California experience. One has been a certain amount of, of white flight. Uh, I was talking to Eric Garcetti in Los Angeles for, for my podcast, uh, among other things. And you know, we were talking about how in LA, which is an extremely majority minority, you have had a huge number of whites leave Los Angeles. Why they did that, I, I can't say for sure. But it implies to me that there might be some different dynamics for states and for the country where people are, are less likely to leave the country. But the other thing is that it went through also hard periods, right? We had the, the Pete Wilson, Prop 187, affirmative action, um, Supreme Court cases. There was a period of, of real friction before the politics became such that you couldn't be a, a state-level politician in California and not be trying to appeal to a diverse electorate. So the one thing I would say is that I don't see – I certainly don't see the Obama presidency as some kind of failed experiment here. The thing I am trying to point out is not that we are in for disaster. I continue to be on the on the team of like America's past is much worse than its future, uh, even given the Donald Trump experience. But I do think that it is going to be a, a continuous dimension of our politics. And one place where I disagree with some of the optimistic take is like, let's say in the next 10 years, you have enough change in the electorate that it becomes a reasonably stable, at least national majority for politicians who speak of diversity as something that they like. Let, let's put it that way, because you can imagine Republicans doing that too. A world in which you have a white electorate, a, a sort of revanchist 30% of the electorate that is really upset about the thing of having now lost power totally because the Obama coalition, which was not nearly able to run American politics in 1988, but becomes dominant by 2024 or 2030 or whatever you wherever you might put the thing, that's going to have a lot of friction associated with it. And, and the point is not that America can't handle the friction, but it is going to end up being a constant and I think quite powerful part of our politics that people should sort of understand its roots. The fact that one group can hold power sustainably does not mean that the holding of that power will not create backlashes and reverberations and ripples that are going to lead, particularly in individual states, to some tough things happening. I will say the final thing here, the dark version of this, is that the way that that coalition tries to hold on to power, which you've seen a little bit in places like North Carolina, is by becoming sort of flatly anti-democratic. Um, and I don't mean big D, I mean small D here. So you get a lot of things like voter ID laws. You've begun to see a lot of things happening in the Republican Party that are about making it harder to vote in ways that clearly are meant to disadvantage uh, non-white voters. And you could have a lot of that as that group tries to hold power. In the service of keeping this from being like a snowballing like roundtable but podcast, I kind of want to drill down on like one of the many threads that we've been talking about, which is what Matt brought up as whether mixed race people identify as white or not, uh, which ties into what you were saying about Pete Wilson, which is I think it's really important to understand here that identity is both 
historically contingent and socially constructed, right? That it does not persist between generations and that it's affected how people identify and which identities they think of as collectively salient are affected by what politicians do, what media does, other factors in public life. This is something that uh, Ezra, your piece brings into play when talking to Ashley Jardina, who says, you know, white identity may be politically salient if it's activated, but it's not always going to be that way. But while you do talk about saliency a bunch in the piece, I think that the question of what identities are even extant for people to choose from, it's a question that demographers have a lot of questions about, but it's also something that we do have historical information on, right? You know, you mentioned in passing the Irish and the kind of Irish assimilation into whiteness in the 19th century, but there's a very live debate among historians right now about how that happened, right? To what extent was it Irish people choosing to identify themselves as white, in particular because of anti-black racism? And to what extent was it the white majority discriminating less against Irish people? Those two things are obviously going to be mutually constitutive, but it's very, very hard to kind of move things directly in the direction of trying to assimilate people when you have an interest in discrimination. I think that Cuban-Americans are actually a really good example here of like a group that was considered whiter 60 years ago. Arab-Americans considered whiter 60 years ago than they are now. Because discrimination has the power to create new identities and to make them salient, it's really hard to go to a place of, well, as long as people can just keep assimilating into the majority, then we're not going to have this weird kind of apartheid regime. Right. And this is not a particularly new conversation. You know, the arguments about race mixing and mixed race people look up the history of passing and people who've been able to do so effectively, um, basically by looking, quote unquote, white. I've had relatives on the black side of my family for whom that that was an extremely important part of their lives and how they were able to be successful is by appearing to be white. What that means is a larger conversation. But I also think that there will be groups that cannot assimilate into whiteness. And this idea, I think, when we talk about majority, minority, you know, I think Matt makes a really good point talking about how For some groups, it will just be that we just start thinking of them as being, quote unquote, white. But I think that we also need to be careful. And I think someone brought up a a good point on Twitter that the African-American experience will always be an inherently separate historical and political experience than that of non-white people who have made up this great country. And I think that it's important to notice that When we talk about people assimilating into whiteness, we are talking about the people who have the political and social capacity to do so. I do not. I will never have that capacity. My father will never have that capacity. That is not something that we can do. And there are a lot of groups that can. And I think that that in and of itself is worthy of consideration of who gets to be included within this sociopolitical club, so to speak. I guess the question here is, is whiteness and non-whiteness the central distinction in America, or is blackness and non-blackness the central distinction in America? Dara, I would read this book. (laughs) (laughs) But so we should also talk about Donald Trump because he, he lurks in the background of this discussion. But first, let's take a break. 
You know, if you're like me, if you're the kind of person who listens to this podcast, you're probably hearing all the time about different nonfiction books that are in the news, people are recommending to you, there's, there's a lot of buzz around them. You want to kind of be part of the conversation, but you don't necessarily have time to read everything that people are talking about. So our sponsor, Blinkist, has solved your long list of must-reads once and for all. There's an app. It takes thousands of the best-selling nonfiction books. It distills them down to the really high-impact elements, so you can read or listen to them in under 15 minutes, all on your phone. So with Blinkist, you expand your knowledge, learn more in 15 minutes than you can in almost any other way, and you can listen anywhere. So it's just, like, really great for my commute to work. You know, I walk about 15, 20 minutes, and you get just, like, a quick download of, like, a book that's important that people are talking about. You find out what's going on. Uh, They've got timeless classics like Think and Grow Rich, you know, current bestsellers. When Fire and Fury was out. To be honest, I think a lot about politics. I don't really want to like sit down, read whole long books about it, but this was like a huge important book. People need to know what was in it. Got my fire and fury, got my fix, knew what I needed to know. So Blinkist is constantly curating and adding new titles from best of lists. So you were always getting the most powerful ideas in a made for mobile format. Five million people are using Blinkist to expand their minds. 15 minutes of time you can get started today. So for a limited time, Blinkist is a special offer just for Weeds listeners. Go to Blinkist, that is B. L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash weeds and you will start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist dot com slash weeds to start your free seven-day trial. Blinkist dot com slash weeds. So uh, as a journalist in 2018, one of the things I often find myself doing is explaining that a term that you might have heard that you might think means one thing actually means something totally different or a lot less scary than what you might assume. So we're going to do this now with secret clinical strength antiperspirant. Want to clear a few things up. First of all, it's not actually a secret. Secret is the brand name. You're allowed to tell people about it. I'm allowed to podcast about it if I like. Two, clinically strong just means it's good at preventing sweat, like as in twice as good as regular antiperspirant. It's not called twice as good. It's just called clinical strength, but that's the way you can read it. That's why it's on the top shelf. Three, strength. It's a pretty interesting word for women's deodorant, not something you usually hear. It tends to be more balanced, delicate. So, you know, actually leaning into the idea that antiperspirants are supposed to stop sweat and that is hard to do is pretty interesting for that sweating is bad. You know, it's it's not something that most people want to do. It is late summer in D.C. And let me tell you, sweating is not a pleasant experience. Stopping sweat, on the other hand, is the absence of an unpleasant experience. It's a good thing. It raises human utility. So if all of that is appealing to you, feel free to buy secret clinical strength antiperspirant. Don't be turned off by the name and feel free to tell anybody about it. I think that a striking thing about Donald Trump to me is that he is such a poor steward of the interests of the communities that he claims to represent in a a descriptive representational sense, right? And that seems – on the one hand, it's so typical for an American Republican Party president to be incredibly committed to a sort of regressive tax cutting agenda that it like hardly seems noteworthy that all of Donald Trump's economic policies are terrible for working class people of all races. But on another level, like it really is remarkable that if I think about, you know, when when I was a kid, uh, I lived in New York and Rudy Giuliani was the mayor and he was a 
sort of Trumpish figure in his politics. There's a reason that they are closely aligned, blah, blah, blah. But if you look at like outcomes in New York City for white people when Rudy Giuliani was mayor, I think you would say like it was going pretty well. Right? Like the promise of Rudy Giuliani's America was that he was going to get tough. Crime was going to fall. There weren't going to be squeegee men at the tunnel. And like all of that happened. Right? And like you could reasonably ask you like did Giuliani deserve credit for all of those things happening? Was the price in terms of the brutalization of Amadou Diallo and, and others worth it? Right? But like they were happening. Right. And so like if you were a white New Yorker who didn't really care about police brutality against black and immigrant communities and really did want crime to fall and really wanted economic development in the city, like he was doing that stuff, right? As ugly as it can get, there is something like healthy and sane about like community representation politics in which you say, I'm going to stand for the interests of this group of people and then you deliver on that. And then there is this like Donald Trump bait and switch where like Breaking news story last night was maybe the Treasury Department would just pretend that they have the legal authority to enact a $100 billion capital gains tax cut by asserting that the rates should be indexed to inflation. And like that's wild. That's what Trump is about. That's what the Republican Party is about. That's to me a crucial aspect of like how unhinged has America become is that the political conflict is happening so heavily along these cultural lines. But the actual policymaking conflict, it implicates that stuff, right? Like the Justice Department is rolling back consent decrees with police departments and changing its affirmative action guidelines. But like a lot, the vast majority of Trump era policymaking is just about giving rich people money. Well, right. I disagree with the vast majority because hashtag accept immigration. But let yeah. me merge the the points a few of you are making here, though, because I, I think this is useful. So there's a question here about what is the future of, for honestly, lack of a better term, the identify as white brand. <laughs> and then there's a question of how is Donald Trump delivering for his constituency, some part of which wants to make sure that America continues to feel in its power structure the way it has felt in recent decades or in, in sort of modern memory. And one thing that I also think Donald Trump is doing a bad job of is just he's bad for the brand. Like if you are a young person like asking like, which side of the future do I want to be on? Like you just look at the polling among young people like you don't want to be on Trump's side. And so to the extent that the interests of white America, again, there are a lot of white people on the Democratic side. So you don't want to you don't want to talk about this as a monolithic coalition. But to the extent that like the interests of a sort of a revanchist white coalition or a traditionalist white coalition have aligned and stacked and merged into the Republican Party, Donald Trump is really like day by day, minute by minute tarnishing that brand. You could imagine a, a white politician who spoke in a much more inclusive way and so is creating a pathway to a Republican Party that would continue to be able to uphold a lot of the Republican Party's ideas in a very diverse America, right? There and there are people who are trying to do something like that. I mean Jeb Bush. Jeb sure, Jeb. But I actually think Jeb Bush is a good example of somebody who's trying to do something right. like that. Yeah. And Donald Trump really 
isn't. Donald Trump is running a very defensive sort of rear guard. You know, the, the idea is like we'll build a wall and keep people out. And the idea is that, you know, we'll prosecute voter fraud because like the, the wins were never real anyway. Barack Obama maybe wasn't born here at all, right? It's like it's almost like trying to roll back what's happening on a technicality. And and that's a complicated play to run. I also think that the thing that is worth always noting about Donald Trump is that He's just authentic in this. And this I I always feel is really important about him. And I think it's something the media, which tends to assume politicians have a certain amount of double talk, underplays. But he just feels this way. He he just like this is a very constant part of his rhetoric. It's a thing he it's a thing he believes. It comes out in all kinds of strange ways. And so uh, one of the things I was looking at in this piece was the the economic anxiety versus racial resentment debate, and got a, a look at this forthcoming data from this great book, Identity Crisis, by by John Sides, Lynn Vavrek, and, and Michael Tesler on the 2016 election. But that really shows, I think, pretty conclusively that. Funnily, it wasn't that economic anxiety activated racial resentment. It's that racial resentment activated economic anxiety. The more racially resentful you were, the worse you believed the economy was doing under Obama. And now, by the way, the more racially resentful you are, the more economically optimistic you are. The idea that how you feel about the economy is an objective measure of your circumstances is not at all how people deal with the economy. But I was thinking during the piece that if a lot of the economic anxiety stuff were right, Donald Trump believes the economy is great. He thought it was terrible in 2016 when it was mostly like it is now and he thinks it's great now when it's mostly like it was in 2016. Fine. That has not changed his view on immigration at all. It has not changed the level of anger he has towards NFL players kneeling to protest police brutality at all. It has not changed anything about his or his coalition's politics, which is to say that the anxieties and fears and, and, and frustrations that are, are brought by a rapidly diversifying country are not obviously to me going to be eased just by a better economy. A better economy is good for because a better economy is good, but it's not going to solve this problem. Right. And I think that that's something, Matt, you talked about kind of the class argument that was happening during the Democratic primaries. And I'd like to note that, you know, class and race have been intertwined in this country for centuries. And a better economy or high union membership or low unemployment has done markedly little to kind of impact that conversation. You know, when you look at the numbers of when the most Americans were members of unions or had, you know, close to full employment, those numbers come at times of the very depths of the civil rights movement around the time of the murder of Emmett Till. Like, the, you know, the two can work together. You can have a full-time job and be racist. You know, it's, it's something you can do in your spare time also. But I think it's interesting you brought up about Trump representing this rear guard of conservatism. I think that that's something a lot of conservatives are noticing because older conservatives and younger conservatives have very different views of Trump. Yep. And, you know, there's very much of older conservatives saying like, well, it's either him or the metaphorical highway, whereas younger conservatives are like, you're looking at this person and they're seeing very much the same person we are, the same person who pretended he didn't know who David Duke was and made those statements about Charlottesville. You know, young conservatives, to their credit, they are not stupid and they can see and they can hear. And so I think that it's very interesting because I feel as if that defensiveness is, you know, I've argued that Trumpism is not a real thing. And I think it's largely based on that. It's not a forward moving concept, Trumpism, except 
I think you can make the argument that maybe trade is something that there's like a forward moving agenda. But other than that, it's purely defensive. It's purely anti this or anti something else. And, you know, you start seeing white nationalists arguing like diversity is code for anti-white. This idea that like, well, if you're propping up these people, that must mean that you're going against me and people like me. And I think that that's an important point to note that it's a very backwards moving coalition. And I think a lot of people are starting to notice that, especially because the people for whom it was pitched to heaviest and who responded in 2016 are the same people to whom we see with the tariffs issue, the same people to whom this coalition has given really nothing. I mean, the game here isn't to win a majority of support among Americans, though. The game is to win enough House seats, enough Senate seats, and the Electoral College, which is to say it's to win among voters. And this is where both the kind of explicit attempts to engineer the electorate with things like state voter ID laws and just kind of voting patterns are relevant, right? Like, we know that older people are more likely to turn out to vote activating their kind of sense that America has changed demographically from where it was when they were young is going to move more votes than trying to activate, you know, young voters will on the margin. And I don't think that this is appreciated enough, and maybe it's wrong and I'm just speculating, but because young voters are less likely to, you know, see themselves as politically engaged, because their political engagement tends to be more kind of conditional or short-term, it's very easy for them to see themselves as outside of politics. You know, in a lot of the cases, if politics is seen as this ugly culture war, it's possible for a white person to say, well, both sides are doing this really ugly polarizing stuff. I don't really want to be part of that. I would like to opt out. No one is really speaking to me. That is not something that people of color can say because their identities are the ones being implicated here. But it's possible for a conflict, a racially conflict-averse white person to say, well, if politics is becoming about identity, then what I don't want to do is get involved in politics. And that, I think, is kind of an underappreciated problem in reacting to Trump. Right. Yeah, this is a way in which I think it'd be useful actually to get off of Trump and talk a little bit about some of the, the downstream stuff, which is, you know, I talk a lot in the piece about the political correctness debates and also the identity politics debates. The thing is that Obama and Trump are both in different way symptoms. Like the point I'm really trying to make in the piece is that a huge amount of what is going on in our, our political sphere and our political conflicts are, are downstream from these changes. But so it's not just them. It's the celebration, which a lot of conservatives found very frustrating over Black Panther. It is press one for Spanish when you call a, a phone tree line. It is Oscars so white and getting lectured by Chris Rock when he's hosting it about institutional racism. It's Roseanne Barr, first the show being successful and then getting fired. It, it happens on all sides. And it is also this sense, to, to Dara's point, that politics and American life to some degree is becoming identity politics. When you're in the majority and you control the agenda, your politics just become politics. It's just coded as what politics is really about. The fact that the entire agenda is responsive to your particularistic, in some cases, concerns, that's just politics. And then as that control weakens and a lot of groups begin contesting it, that's identity politics. Other groups who you see and who see themselves to some degrees as having an, as having an identity that is related related to their, their political concerns are now fighting for to get their grievances heard, to, to be heard, to be seen. And now as people are saying that about you, 
And like, that's not how you ever seen yourself. And, and it creates this very, very strange thing. Identity politics is a way of dismissing other people's politics, just like always and forever. And the people who get to lob it around, like that is a political high ground. If I can say your thing is identity politics, but mine is just tax policy. <laughs> and like, yes, tax policy is related to identity. Like it implicates in the same way that we were talking about welfare and other things before, all these different things have disproportionate impacts on different groups, but we don't see them that way. And just a big piece of this, I think, is going to be about these actually non-political spaces or spaces we don't always think of as political. I think the cultural space here is actually much more important than we give it credit for. Matt's point is very well taken that a huge amount of the policymaking in the Trump era is actually about economics, where Trump is not representing the group he claims to speak for. But this is something that I think is very present in Jane's work. One thing that Donald Trump is excellent at is monetizing and weaponizing the culture war. He seems himself much more interested in that kind of thing. He tweets about it more. He may actually personally care about tax policy. I don't really know. But he seems very, very, very connected to things that are going on in – like I remember how excited he got when Mike Pence got booed and then talked to at Hamilton. That was like the best day of Donald Trump's whole presidency. So. It's not just politics and politics is going to be responsive to it and it's going to reflect it, but it's not going to be a space that is separate from it. I think that's a very important piece of it because I think if you narrow things to just, you know, if a Democrat who's pro-diversity wins in 2020, then this is – no, no, no. Like that's not how this is going to go. And the other reason that it is true and there's a separate conversation about the, the white fragility inherent and that you cannot say say things like majority minority or seeing people on Twitter yesterday say the idea of the emerging democratic majority did more damage this country than any other. But I was alive in the Bush administration. I remember the books being written about the emerging permanent Republican majority and nobody said like you're not allowed to say that because it will make non-white people feel feel bad because they're going to lose political power forever. There's an interesting dimension to that. But even so, even if you did have more careful talk from demographers and political scientists and, and to some degree politicians, the places where this conversation is being experienced, it's in the culture. It's in cultural flashpoints that go viral on social media. It's on cable news and what Hannity and Limbaugh are saying. Tucker, like it, it, don't forget Tucker, about Tucker. Tucker, for, to, to be sure. Um, <laughs> this stuff is, is elsewhere. And it's on the left too, by the way. I mean, there, there's a triumphalism that comes into it. This is what I'm trying to, to say in the piece is that it's not that it's any one thing. It's like the background context of what is going on. It, it's like in this way, I compare it to inequality and polarization. It's part of what is creating everything. And I think it, it's so important that you made that point, Ezra, that like what we do is identity politics. The bull moose party was identity politics, you know. For, the for mooses. Yeah. <laughs> for you Teddy know, Roosevelt. Yeah. You know, like, you know, Calvin Coolidge's election was identity politics. In a lot of ways, I could make that argument. And I think it's important to recognize that just because it's your identity doesn't mean it's not identity politics. And I think when Trump brings up the NFL and recognizes that this will be a salient point for his supporters, I think it's important to note that, like, I'm working on a piece about the NFL anthem debate, and I've written on college football and the NFL before. And I think it's such an important note that, like, these conversations have been had before and that the obvious background kind of tenor of sports and culture and how it has to do with race. It was so interesting, Ezra. I apologize you know, when you were talking about Oscar so white. I think I gave you a face to just be like, ah, yes, that was so very, very hard on our dear, beloved white people to hear <laughs> that maybe sometimes Oscars should go to non-white people. What a tragedy indeed. But so, but so wait, let, let, me, let me stand up here, though, because <laughs> like, I, I think that there's a 
a melding together of different things, right? Like one is society and people say things, right? And like I think a great thing to say if you work in the film industry, you care about movies, you care about diversity and representation is Oscars are so white. There should be more Academy Awards for people of color. That's fantastic. Like go for it. I agree. My father's an Academy member. He agrees. He votes in accordance with that. Another thing is electoral politics, right, in which like there are choices and like I don't think that Donald Trump is more interested in the culture war than he is in his economic agenda because if what he really cared about was the culture war, he would moderate his economic agenda and trash Democrats at the polls. But like he, I think, like cynically deploys this stuff to do what he wants, which is like he and his billionaire friends can rip everybody off while we fight about the fucking Oscars. I, I and think like, you're giving and, like, Trump choice, so much credit right now. And like and a choice that like Democrats need to make all the time is like you're saying in politics, right? As you're saying, like, because everything is identity politics on some level. So like you are creating an identity for your own political movement, right? And like, do Democrats want to say this is a political movement that is for people who are fired up about racial diversity in Oscar nominations? Or is this a political party for like Everybody who wants good health care, good schools, blah, 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 blah. And that is like a daily choice and is a choice in which like all politicians have always said option number two. And then like Hillary Clinton to win a primary campaign like went with option A and then it didn't work. I don't really so buy I, this. I, I, no, I no, I don't buy it at all. I think that the assumption you're making is that people are forming their opinions on economic issues based on their economic interests and that those are either in concordance or conflict with their preferences on cultural issues. One of the things that Ezra's piece shows and that I think we've seen in various white papers that you know we've all read or talked about on the weeds is one of the effects of activating white identity among white people is that they have less redistributionist views on economic issues. But I'm saying like when you're doing politics, right, like you're on both sides. Trump is like what we should do is all vote along racial lines, right? And then if you're on the other side, you got to count. You'd be like, okay, if everybody votes along racial lines, we're going to lose. So now like what is my alternate strategy? Now one hypothesis, right, in which, you know, Dara personally has has a lot to answer for is you can can use gender identity, right? Like if you go into like woke social media precincts, right, like that is the implicit theory, right, is that women and people of color are going to form a majority and beat white men. So like maybe – you know, but like then you you have to do that work. What I frequently see happen is this kind of like assertion that like the white men are ruining everything, a fairly small numerical minority. And then people look around at the vote totals and like, huh, what happened with the white women? And like, I, I don't know, man, like what did happen, right? But it's like if you're engaged in the political arena and you are trying to help people and effectuate change, you need like a program of action and a plan with some kind of reasonable prospects of success. And I think that just like racialized defeatism is not a great. I just want to pull back into the realm of things we're contesting, this idea that Donald Trump's economic policy is a disappointment to many Trump voters. Like, I think that if you pulled them in a vacuum and said, what is your ideal state? They would probably not say $100 billion tax cuts for the rich. But between the kind of master narrative of redistribution helps people who are not you and the fact that 
people don't vote in equal weight on every single issue that's important to them. There are particular issues that are more likely to change their political behavior than others. I'm not sure that we're looking at a situation where if people only knew that Donald Trump was governing as a plutocrat, they would somehow change their opinions of what his regime is doing. So right. so a couple, a couple things here. So one – I don't disagree with the, the point you're making about politicians making choices. I do a little bit disagree with the framing of the Clinton campaign, which I think tilted more towards that side. But but it's never A or B. It's always A and B. And like it's always worth noting that Hillary Clinton's vote total and vote composition was so close to Barack Obama's, much as Donald Trump's was so close to Mitt Romney's that if you didn't know something big had happened, you just wouldn't know something big had happened. I mean, she was off by like, what is it, two percentage points off of his um, popular vote total? Yeah, but like and that's the point. Like you, I, I understand. You, you but, win but, and lose on the margin. But my point is that it was not as sharp a swing as I think you're making it here. Stronger together was not like <laughs> we're going to do nothing. I mean, she was very big on folks suffering from the opioid crisis. And by the way, very a lot of my uh, work in this comes from some of this work Tesla has done, Michael Tesla at UCI, about both the Obama presidency and then in this new book, Identity Crisis, about 2016. And something he makes a point of, by the way, is there used to be this idea, and it was true in 08, that Hillary Clinton had this great connection to the white working class when she was running against Barack Obama. Hillary Clinton was different after she served in the Obama White House and was sort of a representative of that White House running in 2016. And so things had changed. But the idea that then she had gone from being heavily favored among racially resentful whites to heavily disfavored among them – I think the change there was not just what she said. I think the change there was what she represented, and it created constraints on on what was actually possible to do. But the big point I, I want to make here is that this all goes to the actual core of it, which is these coalitions and the way they're changing, they themselves change the decisions politicians can make. Our country and the way it's changing, it, and by the way, also the way our communication mediums are changing, something I did not get into here in the way I wish I had was both cable news and sort of Twitter, Facebook, where these are hyper-competitive media atmospheres. You need things that are going to pull people in. And the thing that actually pulls a lot of people in is something that activates one of their stronger identities. And so you have a lot of this discussion and, and, and these kinds of issues are winning in a lot of the public debate where, where they wouldn't before. But so you have coalitions that now can push um, uh, ideas onto the agenda. You have parties. The Republican Party needs to activate, as Sean Trendy had put it, the, the missing white voter. Donald Trump came up with a way to do that. The Democratic Party needs to activate the Obama coalition. Now, one way to do it is to have Obama run for office. But if you're not going to do that, you need to do something. You need to find a way to turn those voters out. And yeah, there are different choices you can make on the margins. But the structure of that, and this goes to my point about this shaping a lot of politics to come, is that you're going to have a Democratic Party that's going to emphasize more issues of racial equity and for that matter, gender equity and just equality in general. And you're going to have a Republican Party that is going to have to be more responsive to, to the concerns of these white voters. Now, maybe that won't last for that long because it won't be the equilibrium is going to tilt towards Democrats due to demographic change or whatever. Or maybe not. Um, depends on what happens to white voters. White voters could start voting in higher percentages for Republicans. That's an implication, at least, of some of the research I'm, I'm using here. So I, I think these things, they could go a lot of different ways. But the structure, while it is a choice, that politicians, media figures, they respond to the market that is actually out there to where the voters are, to where strong opinions are. I think if you asked every single Democrat serving today, should we talk about abolish ICE at all in this election? Every elected official Democrat, they would say no. And yet they are. And they are because the nature of their coalition, the nature of the media atmosphere, the nature of what they get asked and where the energy is, is pushing them to do that. And 
there's a certain amount of politics that is choice, but there is a certain amount of politics that is structure, much as our culture is structure, much as what's happening at campuses is structure, about who has voice. And as that changes and as we don't have a settled equilibrium, um, you are going to have different decisions made on that than we have had made in the past. I also think it's very useful, and I think I'm glad we kind of backed away from talking about Trump because I feel as if while Trump is an important point of discussion in this conversation, he actually is a terrible representative for this, which you see in that candidates who have attempted to take on Trumpism as their mantle are terrible and have done badly. Especially, it's interesting, you know, it's funny to me that people seem to They hear the dog whistle and decide to just make it into text. You know, you see that with Corey Stewart. You see it with Paul Nalen. You see it with candidates across the country who basically are like, well, this is what Trumpism means to me, which is white nationalism. But they're doing very, very badly. And I think that, as you pointed out, Ezra, you know, had Hillary won, this conversation still goes on. Had we had an entirely separate political space in 2016, this conversation still goes on. This conversation still, you know, was going on when I was a little kid and had to check other as my racial identity because it was black, white, or other. This conversation is ongoing. And it's it's interesting to see that people believe, you know, some people believe that this is, you know, this is a relatively new phenomenon. You know, when we were having conversations about what the person of the future would look like on the cover of Time magazine and who was presented was a light-skinned biracial person, you know, these conversations have been ongoing and will be ongoing. And how structures respond to them will be really interesting, especially with, you know, the growth of mixed people and kind of this renewed understanding of identity. I think that white identity waxes and wanes in its importance and the people and people's understandings of it. You know, we've had moments, you see, in 1915 with the book, The Passing of the Great Race, this very focused ideology of like, there's Nordic people, and then there's everybody else, and everybody else needs to get to getting. But every 20, 30 years, you kind of have this renewed vision of what white identity means. But interestingly, that white identity becomes just gradually slightly bigger. You know, it becomes like, okay, Poles are white. Okay, Italians are white. Okay, certain Latin Americans are white. And it's interesting to see those conversations. But I think it's important to just keep this in a context that is not inherently rooted in this presidency. And one last thing, and then we should probably talk about iodine. But Ezra, as a social theory undergrad in the past life, structure and agency aren't opposing things. They're the things that constitute through each other, right? Like Mm -hmm. the reason that structure matters is that it constrains the choices we make and the choices we make then constrain future choices down the road. And the fact that that's a feedback loop is exactly why we're talking about this simultaneously as, you know, However we feel about the optimism or pessimism of the long-term situation, there is a short-term set of dynamics that we can reasonably predict is going to continue to define American life for some time in the future. And all of us be extremely open that we have no idea how this is going to shake out 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years down the road because – Ultimately, this is going to come down to how human beings are treating each other in public life. And that's not just politicians. That's not just the media. A lot of that is how do Americans deal with difference when they encounter it day to day? One of the responses I saw to this, and and I'm trying to think through how to react to this even as I say it, was a very plaintive and I think very sincere. Like, why do we have to think about it like this? And it came in sort of angry versions, like, like I wish there was nobody like Ezra Klein who just thought about everything like identity, right? Like, this is sort of, you know, like, you are the problem because if we just never mentioned identity, it wouldn't be there. If we just thought in this kind of, I don't know, um, 
you can, you can choose how to describe it, but the, the, there are a lot of folks who believe either they don't have it or they've transcended it. You know, and then there are folks who just look at this and they say, you know, some of this may be true, but you know, I really wish that it weren't. Um, and I wish that people would stop saying it is, and I wish that people would stop reinforcing uh, that it is. And the thing that I do wish we could do in this conversation and that, that I try to think about myself in it is the fact that these are part of our politics, that identity is part of our politics, not just racial, but religious, gendered, class, and a million more that, that, that people don't think of geographic, what region of the country you live in. There are all kinds of identities you are holding in you at all times. And to just know that they, like you know, all kinds of cognitive biases, like all kinds of life circumstances, are just affecting us is not to say that politics is only about identity. There are African-American Trump voters. There are plenty of white Democratic voters. And it's not to say that demography is in some dogmatic, straightforward way destiny. It's just to say that that we should be mindful about the political situation we are actually in so we can think about how to manage it. A, a point both Dara and, and Matt have been making is that there are choices politicians and leaders can make. There are choices media organizations can make. There are ways we can talk about this versus not talk about it. There's a lot here, but it will be managed better if we know what it is we are actually going through and we are able to see the sort of roots of the, the fights we're having and the, and the feelings we're having because politics is an emotional space as well, rather than if we just ignore it and, and try to wish it away. Wishing it away doesn't make it go away. It makes it express itself in very strange ways. And it makes it very hard to see what is happening and so hard to come up with any solutions or, or, or ways to ease it. So I, I, as much as I understand the, the reaction, like, oh, like can't, can't we just like, give up this? Can't we just be Americans? We are that too. We are a lot of things. And it is not, the, <laughs> it is not a rational or rationalist way of engaging the world to ignore the things we are. It's like a, the right way to do this is to understand them, to think about the effects they have on us and each other. And then to, to try to work from there in, in, a, in a compassionate and thoughtful and reflective way. Great. Let's talk about salt. But first, I love Vox's Netflix show Explained. I think you are going to love it too. I think you are especially going to love this week's episode because it is about weed. This is The Weeds. We don't talk that much about weed, but the weed episode of Explained is all about weed. Um, and it is fascinating. It, it actually is. So you learn about like how cannabis was engineered over the years, you know, what plants it was bred from, what it means for the people who use it, why the marijuana that is confiscated in the United States is three times as potent today as it was in the mid-1990s. The kids these days, they are getting, I guess really much fucking higher than I did in high school. And it's also fascinating like why that actually is as a technical explanation. It's actually not the reason that I thought it was. I was surprised. And then you can see how it all fits in with the American war on drugs, right? How policy that was aimed to reduce marijuana consumption actually wound up sort of supercharging marijuana and encouraging like innovators to create this much more powerful stuff. You learn what's nonsense, what's not. Uh, you get the lowdown on like THC, CBD, indica, sativa, ruderalis, terpen flavonoids. Uh, like, what does this all mean? There's a lot of fundamental misconceptions about it. So check it out. It's really like a ton of fun. Uh, you just search for Explained or for Vox on your Netflix app. You go to netflix.com slash explained. I knew that I was going to have to talk about this paper, and I swore that I would study how to pronounce everyone's last names, but then I did not. But this is When It Rains, It Pours the Long-Run Economic Impacts of Salt Iodization in the United States by Achucha Advaru, Stephen Bednar, Anant Naishadam, Teresa Molina, and Kun Nguyen. 
and uh, it is a it's a blockbuster. Um, so they're they're looking at the introduction of iodized salt by the Morton Salt Company, uh, which rolled out very rapidly from 1924 to 1929. Why is that? What do you mean? Why did it roll out so rapidly and take? Uh, over well, so, so it was a brand new invention, and public health commissioners, I think specifically in Michigan, had the idea that they should like make somebody do it, and they had to decide: uh, should we comply for just one state, or should we just put it in all our salt? Got it. Uh, so they did. Before iodized salt, how much iodine people had in their diet had a lot to do with the uh, iodine in the local soil. Um, there's a huge amount of natural variation. So you're able to study uh, you know, the impact on, on different regions. And they find impacts that are like really, really big. I think that the headline result here is that income increased by 11 percent uh, as a result of iodized salt being introduced. Um, some of that is that Wages went up for both men and women, and then the other part is that women's ability to have a job at all uh, increased uh, very dramatically. Um, and then previous studies, which I had not known about but which they mention here, where they look at armed forces qualifying test scores for, for draftees show that for men at least, there were huge cognitive gains. One would assume that the same cognitive gains were present for women. Uh, they were not conscripted, um, so we don't we don't really, really know. There's, you know, some some interesting sort of like smaller micro findings in here. But to me, it's just like one of a number of things that I have read over the years that like it really drives home how effective certain kinds of policy interventions that like work directly on human biology, I guess, for lack of a better word, can be like this is really transformative impact. And we take it for granted in in the US, but there's like billions of people in the world who don't have iodized salt. We do take iodized salt for granted in the U.S. Uh, I know that when we were discussing this paper, we were like, oh, yeah, we should – we're going to spend a lot of time talking about like race and difference in America. We should take a hard pivot and talk about iodine. And then I was reading this paper and all I could think about was Flint because yep. if what we're learning here is that the kind of micronutrients in – fetal and young child development have a massive, massive impact down the road on life outcomes, that ought to remind us that things that we take for granted as natural because we are seeing them persistently in terms of life outcomes may be biological without being innate, right? That, for example, children who are still growing up in lead-poisoned communities might have shortcomings that are going to look decades from now as if there's a natural problem with them. And I think that the it's good news easy is that to, rich people's fancy salt is going <laughs> to offset. Like I, I do think it's easy to kind of overstate uh, the effect of domestic uh, the impact of domestic inequality versus global inequality. I think Matt's point is well taken that like you can't assume iodization for a lot of the world, but if we know that such small lifts like this have such a big impact, then the idea that we're talking about anything other than how do we make sure that like children are not being poisoned in small doses and instead have all the micronutrients we need seems kind of silly. There was a great piece Matt wrote the other day about – it was about the third ways sort of counter to Bernie Sanders, like like what a moderate democratic agenda should look like. And Matt sort of unexpectedly, but, but to my great pleasure in the piece, ended up talking a lot about the equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome debate. And this is a very popular way of framing American politics where it's like whatever the other people want to do, particularly on the left, they want equality of outcome. But in America, we do equality of opportunity. 
I think things like this show that none of the political coalitions that talk so much about equality of opportunity, which the Republicans do constantly, moderate Democrats do all the time, a coalition that really cared about equality of opportunity, like the first thing it would do is a massive, massive nationwide like lead abatement program. Like right. no, like that that is opportunity. Opportunity is not growing up with the cognitive and behavioral shortcomings that come from lead. Um, equality of opportunity is making sure that you have all the micronutrients we need. There are tons and tons and tons of things like this. We actually know quite a bit about what it means for to have for a child to have a healthy environment growing up. Equality of opportunity is making sure children, to the extent we can make sure of it, don't have tons of traumatic experiences and a high level of background stress constantly in their homes. That doesn't go away when they leave. That shapes how they develop. It shapes how they control themselves. It shapes what their stress and anxiety responses are later in life. Equality of opportunity is a if you really want to make a quality of opportunity, it actually ends up being not just an incredibly hard, but a massive, massive, massive intervention. Um, and it's probably impossible. Right. Um, I mean, but at, you can do more. At a certain point, equality of opportunity means that like organizations that offer, you know, court appointed special advocates for children who are suffering from abuse and neglect, you know, get massive funding. Yep. You know, we really expand child protective services. We get involved in the individual lives of Americans to an extent that many Americans would not like. That in itself becomes a fascinating debate because where do you draw the line in terms of how the decisions made or not made. You know, when you're talking about lead in homes, you know, thinking about Baltimore and Freddie Gray, there was some really interesting research about some of the older homes in the area of Baltimore where Freddie Gray lived as a child and talking about the impact that lead had on him. And you start to see the ripple effects of these small moments that change can change an entire city and the city's trajectory. And you think, you know, would it be worth it to intervene so much in one family's life if what happened didn't happen. And it, I think that that in itself becomes a fascinating discussion to have. And for the record, you know, a true equality of opportunity agenda would involve not disrupting the growth of like a couple of generations at this point of African-American children by having a lot of them have fathers who have suffered, you know, incarceration at some point and who are in and out of their lives and not having currently a generation of U.S. citizen, U.S. born children who are living with the very rational fear that their parents are going to get taken from them at, every, at any time. I want right. to talk more about salt. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 because like uh, one thing about these like big political yep. philosophy slogans is that, like, they are really hard, right? But a thing that has come under sort of bad air since the global financial crisis is, like, bloodless technocracy. And something that you are seeing here is that there was, like, extreme benefits of, like, capital P progressive movement heyday, like fiddling around with things that, like, the experts were like, we should put iodine in the salt, and then they did, and then they were just, like, huge benefits. Right. And today, like there are many, many people who live in countries where iodizing salt is not a routine thing, right? And there are all kinds of international meetings. There's like lots of money spent. And like obviously nothing is going to be done that like equalizes opportunities faced by like peasants in Zambia and middle class people in the United States. Like maybe someday, but like that's not on the agenda. But like a thing that really could be done instead of like 
having like baby formula lobbyists fight at World Health Organization meetings is like get it together to fortify staple food in developing countries with the basic micronutrients that people need. Like the cost benefit on this is extraordinarily high. And like we don't really know like how far exactly it will push us or what kinds of second and third order problems can be, you know, effectively resolved by people having like better basic nutrition. But like it would be good for them. It will probably make other problems easier to deal with and like is worth doing. Like politics is about conflict and disagreement on some fundamental level. But like there are also things that like are so good as uses of resources that like it is really worth our while to try to like pull our shit together and make it happen. And the related idea to that is it would be – I think I've actually like called out for this before on the weeds. But I would so love to see a really deep literature review that is looking for what are the set of truly, truly cost-effective, reasonably straightforward public health interventions like these, like lead abatement, that, that, that we can do that would improve human flourishing. I mean, when I think of, I have seen so many studies on capital gains taxation. I have seen so many studies on things that politicians fight about. And while there are studies uh, on lead, and this is a great study we're talking about this week on iodine, you know, when I, I go through and I look at the literature reviews that I find in the philanthropic and effective altruism communities. When I go around, there's like this um, gap between the attention given to the real killers, things like malaria or in the long run extinction level risks. Like there's a real, there's an interest in things that are horrifying um, and and that kill people early, infant mortality. We've made incredible gains in that. I don't want to take anything away. That work is really phenomenal. And then there's a lot of interest in the things we fight about. And, And why we fight about them is not a straightforward level of importance. It has to do with does it connect to our identities? Is it something that the parties disagree on, et cetera? But there's also this sort of middle range where you're taking kids who are maybe fine, right? If you don't have the iodine, right, your your income is 11% lower um, or you don't get the 11% boost, I should say. It's not that you're dead, <laughs> uh, at, least, uh, at least unless your, your iodine deficiency is really, really bad. But it would be good to see more in that kind of middle space because that should be – if there's anything in politics we should be able to agree on, it's those things, right? The, the things that are not that expensive, that help people live somewhat better lives, that are pretty straightforward. The only politician I can think of sort of recently who really put a lot of energy into this, and he did it in ways that, that upset a lot of people. But Michael Bloomberg was very interested in, in things here. He, he did a lot of thinking about public health, had created an administration with a lot of interest in it. But it isn't something you see that often uh, in governor's mansions, in, in presidencies. And and it would be good. I, I think that this stuff, like for the same reason, it doesn't get that much attention. It might actually be a lot easier to, to get political systems to do it. Right. So I, I'm so glad you brought up effective altruism, not only because it gives us an opportunity to remind people that our own Dylan Matthews is like working on an effective altruism project that will be forthcoming on Vox.com at some point in the not too far future, but also because the effective altruism movement is kind of the you know one of the strongholds of bloodless technocrats that like Matt was talking about, partly because it's a way of thinking about problems that don't necessarily require rooting through government to solve, right? Like you don't actually need the American government to endorse a global assault iodization program. You don't need national governments to endorse that, right? There are lots of these kind of 
to the extent that a lot of this is low-hanging utility fruit, it's much easier to do in a way that doesn't require us to actually work through inefficient, you know, democratic institutions. That gets a lot harder when we reach a certain level of, you know, stability and affluence, and the really important goods become not material but symbolic. And with that, I think we better wrap this up. But thanks, uh, Jane, for joining us on a rare uh, Tuesday appearance. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. Uh, I want to remind you all again that The Weeds has been nominated for this year's People's Choice Podcast Awards. You can vote for our show for free by going to podcastawards.com or by tapping the link in your show notes. Voting ends Tuesday, July 31st. That is today. So do not wait. The lives of billions of people suffering from lack of salt iodine are, are hinging on it. So go to podcastawards.com right now to cast your vote for The Weeds. Uh, Thanks to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong, and the Weeds will be back Friday.